When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. You're born an Italian If you want your life to be great See that you're born an Italiano And your life will be great From the moment you're a small bambino You eat pizza, you drink vino Then they make you roly-poly You get stuffed with ravioli If your mama's a paisano You will have the world on a plate So see that you're born in Italiano And your life will be great Hey there, paisani, and welcome back to another episode of the Italian American Podcast. I'm your moderator, John Viola, and we are coming to you on Monday, August 17th and wishing you a belatedly happy Ferragosto. For all of our friends over in Italy, it's that wonderful time of the year, the Feast of the Assumption of the Blessed Virgin Mary, and the weeks that surround it when everybody takes at least two weeks vacation and the country surrenders to the August heat and everybody gets to enjoy downtime at the beach and we hope our cousins across the pond are enjoying the downtime right now. And hopefully all of you out here are celebrating a little break in your own way as the dog days of summer are certainly upon us. We're coming back after a two-week break. We did not have an episode last week, and so we thank everybody for their patience. I'd love to tell you that we took off for Ferragosto, but in actuality, this was a very necessary break because we're coming back today with the second part of our Conversations on Columbus series. And I have to confess, this has been a massive undertaking for me personally, particularly in interviews. We've been able to do about a dozen interviews and we continue to have more booked in the coming weeks, but really wanted to make sure that we get as many diverse voices and opinions as we can here on the Italian American podcast to help us dig through this very, very complicated issue. For those of you who haven't listened, I highly recommend going back and listening to the last episode first to get a better understanding of what we're trying to do around these episodes on the life, legacy, and historiography of Christopher Columbus, a particularly sensitive topic right now, and one that has obviously got our community coming down on two different sides of a very tense coin. So I'm going to give my best shot at exploring this topic, and hopefully the interviews that we've so far conducted are ones that you'll find interesting and useful and perhaps relevatory of new information and new insight into the dialogue that perhaps you have not heard so far. They'll be sprinkled throughout this episode and subsequent episodes uh, coming up in the next few weeks. Also want to say a quick thanks for the great response that we've gotten to the first episode explaining what we're going to do. Everybody's been really thoughtful and uh, supportive of our efforts to explore this history in an even-handed and patient way. In fact, even my father-in-law, who I don't know if he's ever listened to the show before, actually called me and told me it was well done and thoughtful. So, Pop, that's uh, high praise from you. I know you're a thoughtful guy, and I'm happy to have it. And like I said, in the time between the first episodes released two weeks ago and today, I've already done probably about 12 different interviews with different sources on all aspects of Columbus and his history, and we'll continue to do more. So while we're trying very hard to stick to an outline of topics for each episode, some things may come up and some addendums may be added or uh, interesting voices on a topic that's already passed may come up in the future, and we'll certainly plug those things in to future chapters in this thing. But this episode is going to be about finding the source material, what's really out there on Columbus, what can we understand that was in contemporary hands. And the bottom line is, my main goal with this series is not to give you my opinion, not to have you convinced one way or the other how to look at Columbus, how to look at Columbus Day, and frankly, what he means to America or the Italian-American community. My goal is pretty simple. I'm really bothered by what I see as an oversimplification of history on both sides of this argument. 
I grew up in a time where we learned that in 1492, Columbus sailed the ocean blue and everything was wonderful. And now I'm looking out at a world where this one figure is being blamed for so many of the injustices that exist in our society today, both in the American hemisphere and in the world in general. And neither of those things feel good to me. And as a student of history and anthropology and a believer in truth, I have to believe that this Gordian knot can be untied and that somewhere at the heart of this discussion is historical truth that we can gather from primary source material that is objective, that tells us what we realistically can and cannot know about Christopher Columbus and his times and his experiences and his effects on us and what we can and cannot ascribe to this man and to the actions that he undertook in his lifetime. So I'm really setting out on a journey to explore and look for truth. And I'm going to exhaust every possible avenue to get there. And I want to include all of you, our listeners on the Italian American podcast. I'm assuming the majority of whom are proud and interested Italian Americans who want to know more about this topic than just the headlines about statues and parades and discussions that oftentimes are on both sides, unfortunately, oftentimes subjective, ideologically based, and frankly, play into one of the worst weaknesses of our democracy, which is identity politics. And I want to do the best I can to take passion and emotion out of the conversation and see what we can find that is real and that is objective about this man. And hopefully you'll come along with me on the journey for the opportunity to see what I see, hear what I hear, and hear from the people that I get to speak to and continue to ask the questions with me. Thank you all for your reactions, for sending in some questions. Some of them have been used already in the interviews and we'll continue to be on the lookout for your thoughts and questions and everybody really stuck to the point and didn't send us their manifestos, which thank you again for um, resisting the temptation because I know how hard it can be. But thanks for the thoughtful questions and please keep sending them in in reaction to all of these episodes. And we had some great recommendations for people we should speak to or articles that we should read, some of which we did and uh, some of those people who we've spoken to. We're not going to have clips from everybody today. We've got, like I said, about a dozen interviews already in the can and we're going to spread them out Some voices will be on multiple episodes, some will be on specific episodes, but we're certainly going to include uh, some audio from everybody we've interviewed over the course of this series. So, all that being said, if we're going to get this right, we got to start from the beginning. As they say, if you want truth, you got to go straight to the mouth of the horse. And to be honest, I have to make a confession. Even though I've been obsessed with Italian-American history my entire life, I've never been particularly interested in Columbus as a historical figure. So when I set out on this journey, I realized I had a lot of catching up to do. So I turned first to my personal library, because my wife criticizes me constantly for buying more books than I can ever read in a lifetime, and I knew I had one or two of them on Columbus in my bookshelf that would be at least a place for me to begin. And in fact, I did find a couple of resources that have gone into this project. I found two books and one essay. The two books were both gifts that had been given to me over the years, by friends and family, and while I had perused them when I received them, it was time for me to kind of give them a much deeper dive. So the first book that I turned to was Columbus, The Four Voyages by Lawrence Burgreen, and it's a pretty even-handed and interesting history, an account of Columbus's four voyages from 1492 to 1504, and Burgreen kind of excuses himself from any judgment on Columbus. He reports the good, the bad, the indifferent. The second was Columbus and the Quest for Jerusalem by Carol Delaney. This is a book that I was given years ago when I was working at the National Italian American Foundation, and Carol Delaney's considered one of the experts on Columbus. Her book takes a look at the navigator from a unique perspective. Delaney argues that Columbus wasn't just sailing for riches. Uh, He was sailing for the funds to support a new crusade to retake Jerusalem, which had been in Muslim hands for about 300 years at this point. And Delaney points out that 1492 is only 39 years after the fall of Constantinople in 1453, when the thousand-year-old Byzantine Empire came to a close and its capital fell to the Turks. And this is an event of epic proportions for the European social mindset at the time. We're talking about the largest and most important city in Christendom, a city that sees itself as the continuation of the Roman Empire, all of its laws, all of its traditions, 
and the death of the Byzantine Empire cuts off a lot of the Eastern trade that so much of Europe relied on. Uh, so it inspires not just the need to find a westward route into all of these very rich and important trade partners in the East, but also inspires many to seek a revival of Christianity, not just in this incredibly important city, but also, of course, in Jerusalem, which is the holy city for all three monotheistic faiths. So Delaney's work takes Columbus from this perspective under the idea that he's not only working towards founding a crusade, but that he was also a deeply religious figure who gave a great deal of thought to prophecy and to religious predetermination, uh, and in Delaney's words, who cared a great deal for relations and treatment of the indigenous peoples that he met when he arrived here in the New World. So those were the two books that I had on hand, one that was sort of innocuous to Columbus's reputation and one that was pretty pro-Columbus from the outset. Another work that I had was from a 2013 issue of Italian Americana, the Cultural and Historical Review uh, of Italian America, which is produced by the University of Rhode Island. And it's a great little magazine that I used to get when I was at the National Italian American Foundation and one that I've always enjoyed. And in the summer 2013 issue, I was able to find an essay by a friend of mine, Professor Bill Connell from Seton Hall University, called Who's Afraid of Columbus? And Professor Connell will appear in later episodes when we talk about Columbus's legacy in the Italian-American community. He's one of the co-editors, along with Stanislaus Pugliese, of the Rutledge History of Italian-Americans, and a phenomenal guy that I've gotten to know over the years, and uh, I'm looking forward to sharing his thoughts on Columbus Day as a holiday and Columbus's role in the Italian-American community in a future episode. But needless to say, I had a great deal to learn about Columbus. So, in a situation like this, I usually prefer to have a physical book in my hand as opposed to sort of digging through articles and opinions and Wikipedia, which sometimes is questionable. So I headed over to my favorite online bookseller, and I ended up ordering about 12 books on Columbus. And I wanted to kind of cast as wide of a net as possible. And so I ordered books on a range of topics, some that are in print, some that are out of print. Some were pretty straightforward histories, non-interpretive, non-partisan. Others really leaned one way or the other. Others proffered theories that, frankly, came to me out of an intellectual left field. Uh, some talking about Columbus as an alias for a figure who might have been a Portuguese noble or a French pirate some proposed that Columbus was Jewish based on his literacy in Hebrew. There's a whole range of different topics. Some addressed the rewriting of national myth. Others were specifically about the controversy around Columbus and Columbus Day. And three of these works were actually written by someone who turns out to be one of the more interesting stories in this experience for me and uh, an author who we're going to meet a little bit later on in this episode. But for me, the thing that I kept coming back to was that in each of these works... I was encountering quotes around sensitive topics, for example, slavery, which I think is the most important topic we can talk about in the legacy of Columbus. And all of them were quoting the same source material, but quoting it very differently. The translations, the transcriptions, the words that they were using, what fragments of quotes were being used uh, in different contexts by different authors. And so I wanted to weed through these inconsistencies and get to know the source material. And one of the first interviews that I conducted was with Professor Silvio Lassetti. Uh, Professor Lassetti had recently written an editorial in defense of Columbus, and it was sent to us by some of our listeners, and we decided to give him a call. He's going to appear more on future episodes when we weigh the pro-Columbus and anti-Columbus arguments against one another. But I found interesting that he introduced the topic by explaining just how hard it was to really get to the root of the source material. Yeah, there's a lot of mystery about the writings because they're written in an old, old form of Spanish. Some say that Columbus kept secret diaries in Hebrew and that he knew that language, leading to thoughts that he might have been a Spanish Jew. So it's difficult. We have to get at the sources, and they're in uh, libraries in Spain, so you've got to go there and look at the text again. Uh, my source in Puerto Rico got a copy of a page. We have that. It's hard to read even the words and let alone to make a translation. But you have to, and you have to do your best. And you can't, as you said way at the beginning of the program, you can't use feelings 
to decide what the words mean. You have to do the very level best that you can in interpreting what the fact of the matter is. It's always got to be as close as you can come to facts. We were also contacted by Professor Jim Pancrazio, who's not just a professor of Spanish language and Latin American culture at Illinois State University, but also has the fine taste to be a regular listener to the Italian American podcast. And what caught my attention in his email was the fact that in 1992, at the 500th anniversary of Columbus's arrival in the New World, he had worked with the Center for Latin American and Caribbean Studies at the University of Illinois to create a teaching guide for teachers on how to teach Columbus texts without falling into what he calls the binaries, hero versus villain, discovery versus encounter, uh, those kind of black and white dynamics that we hold Columbus to far too often. And much like Professor Lissetti, Professor Pancrazio confirmed that there is some difficulty in getting to the root of these texts. I think a lot of scholarship looks for that, that sense of authenticity. And really, the only thing that can then demonstrate authenticity is the manuscript in the hand of the author. And unfortunately, many things have been lost. The interest of what exactly those texts are in their nature, there's a, there's a vagueness in them. And that vagueness, uh, to uh, Latin American writers have taken that as a, as a foundational vagueness, because one of the words that that Columbus uses, or the narrator uses so much, is the same word that Marco Polo uses, maravilla, you know, meraviglia. There is a, the marvelous, the marvelous. He keeps talking about that. And that some authors in Latin America have taken that as the basis for the magical realist uh, tendencies that you see in Garcia Marquez, uh, Juan Rufo, and other writers. Besides pointing out the vagueness in the documents, Professor Pancrazio also spoke to one of the great challenges for any historian, particularly historians of medieval history, which is the difficulty in understanding the documents that we do have and the incomplete nature of what's actually out there. I asked him about some new documentation that I had read about, which many of Columbus's detractors that I spoke to referenced, which were the records of court cases in which Columbus was the defendant uh, that recently showed up in Spanish archives. Well, I mean, the source material has not been has not been published, and in part because it was in a it was in a different archive and it was only recently discovered. But what I can talk about is what court documents look like in um, in in the colonial tradition because I have worked with those, and the court documents will name names, and and they'll be very specific. And I think there were what the court documents will bring up are issues of procedure. Um, however, those those have not yet been published and circulated. And I think they would be fascinating because in, to a certain degree, they would answer some of the uh, the prompt that 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 Pat, uh, that Pat O'Boyle presented in the introductory episode that can, uh, can we judge Columbus? And I think part of it is that maybe, I believe he already has been, but we don't have the actual kind of the facts of the case because those documents are exceptionally difficult to read. Um, as a scholar, um, I think with some of the documents I was reading in Cuba, what I needed was a, a paleographer to be able to decipher the colonial script because it's done in quill and uh, faded text. Uh, some have been eaten, <laughs> uh, eaten by bugs and things like that. However, that would answer some of those questions. So seeing as we're living in the time of COVID and I can't simply get on a plane to Spain or Cuba or any of the other places where these documents exist in their original form, it makes sense that we have to seek out where the best translations and transcriptions of the most documents we can find exist. I remembered a few years ago in the annual October cacophony around Columbus that being a professional Italian-American means I'm constantly cycling through, uh, reading an article about the approach of the 500th anniversary in 1992 and how the history at that time really began to change the popular conversation about Columbus, how new documents and new translations were changing the way that academics looked at Columbus and his legacy. And it referenced something called the Repertorium Columbianum. The Repertorium Columbianum was a project created in 1986 at the UCLA Center for Medieval and Renaissance Studies. And the Repertorium was the brainchild of an Italian historian at UCLA named Freddie Chiapelli, 
And Capelli was one of the faculties, leading experts in Italian history, and he set out in 86 to compile all of the primary source material, not just on Columbus, but on the Columbian exchange itself. And Chiapelli wanted to create not just a compilation of documents, but a real re-examination of how they've been treated by historians. Uh, the translations, the transcriptions, understanding who might have been involved in their creation, because many of these are second and third generation transcriptions of original documents to begin with. So 22 leading Columbus scholars worldwide were brought together for this undertaking. And the repertorium includes documents like the logs of Columbus's first voyages, uh, the first English translations of a lot of the writings of Columbus's contemporaries, Columbus family legal records, Columbus's contracts with the Spanish crowns, a collection of his biblical prophecies that he compiled himself, and accounts of all four voyages by Columbus's contemporaries who were alive during or slightly after the time of Columbus. And one of the interesting things about the repertorium is, as a project, while it's been groundbreaking in its approach to the study of Columbus and the Columbian exchange between the two worlds that comes after, a lot of the documents in there are documents from after Columbus's death that deal with the Spanish conquistadors and uh, some of the only documents that exist from the indigenous perspective uh, are also included in the 13 volumes that make up the final product of the repertorium. But interestingly enough, the project almost didn't get off the ground. Uh, Capelli starts, like I said, in 1986 with this Herculean task ahead of him. And unfortunately, in 1989, he suffers a stroke and shortly thereafter passes away. And this project is without a shepherd. And Professor Jeffrey Simcox, who is a UCLA professor of 17th and 18th century Italian history, steps in as the editor of the work. So myself and our associate producer, Stephanie Longo, figured... If we're going to interview anybody, we might as well reach for the top, and we reached out to UCLA and Professor Simcox. Then we did get a response from Professor Simcox pretty quickly, and he shared that, unfortunately, he had retired, and it had been about 20 years since he had actually engaged in any uh, work on Columbus, and he thought we might be better served if we found somebody who had been active a little bit more recently. And so, after a few conversations with UCLA, we were sent to one of his colleagues who had worked on the project uh, all those years ago and was still part of the faculty at UCLA, a professor named Teo Ruiz. And so, Professor Ruiz kindly agreed to an interview, and I have to be honest with you, in all of the rush to get these interviews done, I kind of just took for granted that we were going to get somebody from the staff at UCLA, and they were going to talk about the history of the repertorium, and it'd be a few-minute interview. I didn't realize that the person I was going to speak to was going to be not only one of the most interesting historians that I've ever had the opportunity to speak to, but frankly, someone who has been lauded by the likes of President Obama, uh, Teofilo Ruiz, a Cuban-American medieval historian at UCLA. He's actually the recipient of the 2011 National Humanities Medal uh, given him by President Barack Obama. I did this research on him after what was an incredibly fascinating conversation by somebody who's not just an expert in the process of this historiography, but frankly could speak about a multitude of topics around Columbus, his life, and his legacy. So uh, you're going to get some of these clips throughout the different episodes. But the first thing that I asked Professor Ruiz before I knew exactly who he was, was to just share with us how and why this repertorium came into being and which of the documents were most important to our search. There is in 1892, there was a huge collection of documents put out in Genoa, which is called the Racolta, or the Accounts of, which provides a great deal of information on Columbus' family and things like that. So 100 years later, the Center for Medieval and Renaissance Studies embarked on publishing a good number of the texts about Columbus, but not all of them. There are more texts, and there are 13 volumes. And I have to say to you that the most uh, favorite, the, the volume that sells the most, is volume one, which is Nahua accounts, which is essentially after Colombo has been dead, the kind of accounts made by the people whom we call Aztecs uh, about the encounter with the Europeans and things like that. These are accounts of Hernan Cortes 
and the encounter with Europeans in the Valley of Mexico. Because it's really not about Columbus, but it's about the Colombian exchange or the Colombian enterprise. So in 1492, there is an encounter between the old world and the new. It's renewed in 1493 with the second voyage of Columbus. The log of the first voyage is very suspect, and it is part of our publications. But the first voyage of Columbus is really very much, uh, should we say, enhanced and made uh, far more agreeable by Bartolomé de las Casas, who wanted to present Columbus as a kind of heroic figure, a defender of the natives. So it's very altered, and we cannot really sort out what is there true or not. <clears throat> the second volume, the second voyage of Columbus in 1493, when they came not to, to explore, but to settle, there are 17 ships, 1,000 people, there is a doctor, there are animals, and which is the critical moment of the intersection between the two worlds. After that uh, second voyage, Columbus wrote a memorandum to the Catholic monarchs. The, the, the accounts of the second voyage are written by a doctor from Seville called Chanca. And in the memorandum, Columbus suggests, you know, he, he makes a series of recommendations and the Catholic monarch says, yes, no, let's wait. One of the recommendations was to enslave the Caribs since they were accused of being cannibals, you enslave them and with that you pay for the Colombian enterprise. Now, I'm sure many of us are on pins and needles to get to controversy. So the idea that Dr. Ruiz is talking about Columbus's recommendation of slavery is probably one you want to get to. But we're going to get there in a future episode when we actually talk about these accusations. Because as you'll see, scholars have many interpretations for exactly what Columbus was saying. What piques my interest in the conversation is his mention of Delas Casas, because Delas Casas is a name that has come up in all of my conversations. Delas Casas is the source of so much of the primary sources concerning Columbus's life. And as I'm seeing, like just about everything I encounter with Columbus, there are multiple versions of Delas Casas that I encounter throughout this history. Some say he was a great admirer of Columbus, uh, a mentee to the older navigator. Some say he was the greatest critic who burst the myth of Columbus not long after the navigator's death. Some described them as family, others described them as heated rivals. So I wanted to give all of these scholars the opportunity to share with us their take on how we should interpret Bartolomeo de las Casas. I think some of the, the Diario de Navegación, the, the, the diaries of the navigation, it's very obvious that the, the first one is a compilation and a periphrasis by, by Las Casas. He, what, he maintained a very close relationship with Columbus's son and was able to collect documents. And as far as Las Casas' imagery, I mean, his, his interventions into the text and things like that, they're, they're noted in, in certain areas. And, and Las Casas himself says, okay, this is a compilation of texts, and this is what the admiral says. In this instance, he's not critical of Columbus. Later on in his other writings, he does, um, he does describe the abuses of power that Columbus was accused of and, and was punished for, um, let's see, between the third and fourth voyages. Uh, he was a child when Columbus returned to Spain um, after the first voyage, and his father and uncles participated in the second voyage and became colonists. And Las Casas, as a young as a young man at 18 years old, was a uh, a landholder and, and the slaveholder um, in in Hispaniola, which eventually became Haiti and Dominican Republic. And his own political transformation occurred over time. I think Las Casas, like many uh, of Columbus's supporters, was really had to um, to face the facts of Columbus's abuses in the, around the time of the uh, of the third voyage. And part of it was that Columbus had set up a a negotiated a a relationship with the uh, with the Catholic kings that allowed him to take basically ten percent of all of the commerce coming and going from these colonies. I mean, he really did not know. Uh, at that time that it was a, a different continent. 
he also uh, had himself named as the governor um, and the the perpetual viceroy. So that meant that he could leave that to his sons. And it was very evident that the crown was not in favor of the enslavement of the indigenous population because they saw them as their subjects. So Columbus entered into that uh, into that con- that legal conflict and was sent back to Spain in chains and spent many months in prison. At Las Casas, uh, as although admiring uh, Columbus, did have to face that, that reality. And so in, later on in life, you see some of, uh, in some of his writings, I think it's in uh, the more, the larger work, Historia de las Indies, the history of the Indies, the larger, the larger work, you see um, more of those criticisms. Nonetheless, he, he did admire um, that the admiration is, is kind of one of the constants. Las Casas, and this is one of the difficulties I have when teaching teaching Las Casas to students, his primary work is a, a, a short text called The Brief Relation of the Destruction of Indies. And it is the most, I would say, uh, extremely violent. Um, I mean, you think of a Tarantino movie and it, it goes way beyond. It is an incredibly violent. And what students lose sight of is that Las Casas is not opposing the conquest, that what he is is he's opposing one of the the methods of conquest. What he is proposing is a spiritual conquest through through Catholicism. He wants the indigenous populations to assimilate Catholic values and and become part of the Catholic kingdom. And and so in that sense, he's opposing the violence because he's arguing that the people that should be in charge of the conquest in the Americas are Dominican friars, principally himself. <laughs> and, uh, and he is allowed, uh, allowed to carry out a number of different experiments in which, and he eventually has to be rescued, um, uh, rescued because they don't, they don't work out, but his using Las Casas, I think as a, as an advocate of, um, diversity and, and multiculturalism and respect for difference, um, I think has some, some pitfalls. Um, so getting students to actually read Las Casas and uh, kind of detach from the gory uh, descriptions, and they are, I think, the, the just page after page after page of, um, of, of violence and getting them to say, wait a second, this is a rhetorical device to, <laughs> that he's using to basically empower himself. And to put him, to put himself in charge. The only reality is that in the memorandum, Columbus suggests to the Catholic monarchs to enslave the Caribs because, as a punishment for their being so inhuman and beastly, and consuming human flesh. So the Catholic monarch said no, and it's only much, much later. In fact, Columbus may have been dead by then. That Bartolomé de las Casas, with the defender of the natives, and who writes a book that will become the prime example on the brutality of the Spaniards in the New World, which is the destruction of the Indies by Bartolomé de las Casas, is the one who suggests that the natives are people who are not Christians, they have never known Christianity, it is our duty to convert them to Christianity, and once they are Christians, they should be like everybody else, which of course never works out. And that the way to replace their obviously needed labor is by importing infidels, Muslims from North Africa who have been captured in war, who can be bought, and who can be put to work in the work that natives do. I don't know that he intended either Bartolomé de las Casas to be the, you know, the slave trader or the, the originator of slavery. It is the kind of things that people do, but the, the real flow of the slaves will not begin until much later. The main source that uh, the uh, anti-Columbians use is the works of de las Casas, a Spanish priest who eventually accompanied Columbus in, uh, on some of these um, exp- expeditions and wrote what he saw and uh, he is the one who probably should be credited with having introduced the notion of let's have slaves from Africa come, black slavery, 
Columbus didn't have anything to do with that and was opposed to it. But uh, De Las Casas uh, freely admits that, you know, he had said this. And then years later, decades later, he said he made a mistake that he shouldn't have uh, proposed it and repented. So, as is becoming par for the course with my study on Columbus, different scholars, different interpretations of the same man and the same writings. Here we see two versions. Delos Casas as the conscience of the Columbian exchange, and Delos Casas as the root of slavery in the New World. At this point, I was genuinely starting to worry that we might not be able to find objective truth even within the source material. Um, but I turned back into my stack of books, and two of them caught my eye because they were books that were essentially setting out to address the controversies around Columbus and the historiography. One was called Christopher Columbus the Hero, and the other was called Columbus Day versus Indigenous Peoples Day. Both of them were self-published works, and they were both by the same author. And the point that caught my attention was the fact that the author was simply listed as Raphael. I figured a book that was going to make a clear argument one way or the other was going to be one that had to be backed up by fact, particularly if one was going to defend Columbus against modern-day accusations. And sure enough, by page 15, Raphael outlines an entire chapter on source material, historical sources versus secondary sources, and he gives an incredible list of the most important sources out there from Columbus's time. And as I began to read through the book, I realized basically what the author was doing was taking every argument against Columbus, matching quotes from contemporary authors against the original texts. And he was picking apart every sentence of the case against Columbus with the precision that, frankly, looked like the kind of obsessive approach to the source material that I had been searching for. In the back of the books was a listing for a website called officialchristophercolumbus.com. And so I decided we would head over to the site and do our best to get into contact with this mysterious Raphael. And if I thought his books were detail-oriented, his website is a compilation of rebuttals to every article, YouTube video, lecture that is anti-Columbus, deconstructing each accusation, every reference to the original texts. I've never really seen anything like it. It was a level of obsession that was as frightening as it was admirable. Now, here's the part that I find really amazing. When we finally got an opportunity to interview Raphael, we didn't even have his last name at this point, I had assumed he was going to be some sort of Columbus scholar or historiographer or researcher because the amount of detail that he brought into examining the source material was really unlike anything I'd ever seen in any of the other works that I had read. But it turns out, as I learned in our conversation, Raphael is none of those things. He is simply a man on a mission. Rafael Ortiz is not an academic. He's not a historian. He's not a teacher. And until he set out to write these books, he was not an author. He has conducted all of his research and read all of the source material in the limited free time that he has after work. His day job is with the U.S. Postal Service. And he's written three books and managed this extensive website for multiple years on his own dime, and in his own free time. So the first question for me, before asking him about the source material itself, was to find out how this Puerto Rican-American had made himself an expert on Columbus and set out on a one-man crusade in the Navigator's defense. A few years ago, I saw this meme on the Facebook claiming that Columbus was an evil man. So I never heard about that. And I am Puerto Rican and Puerto Ricans, part of our heritage is the Taino. And the Tainos were the people that Colombo supposedly committed genocide, that he killed, you know, supposedly he killed everybody and all that stuff. I never heard that, so I decided to, to research. I found that all that stuff is false, but I was learning a lot of new things, so I decided to start this page. I decided to get the source, read it, and uh, from the beginning, I saw that he was a good man. And so I start to dig more and I I find out that these people, they have an agenda and they want to rename Thanksgiving Day too. So that's when I knew, okay, this is not about Columbus. They want to demonize American history. 
And then I could not find a book that addressed the modern day accusations. So I decided to write a book myself, responding to all these allegations about American history. And that's the way that started. But more so than Raphael's unique story of how he came to be a Columbus scholar, I think the thing that I was most interested in discussing was his absolute obsession with the source material. The thing that I found most interesting was his relentless pursuit of every possible piece of primary history out there. This is a guy who has clearly read and reread everything and references all of these documents in his works and understands when an author uses a quote from one of these sources, whether or not they're using it out of context. And that's a really interesting piece that's come up over and over again in my conversations. A lot of times you have historians using text from these documents out of the historical context. So in speaking about, let's say, Columbus's first voyage, they may quote a piece of the writing about Columbus's third voyage. And Raphael is something of a watchdog to make sure that the chronology is right, that the quotations are right, and that the source material is always being used in context. So I asked him to share with us what he thought were the most important texts for someone like myself who's setting out on their own journey of discovery around Columbus. If you're looking for the truth, you should read as many as you can. But if you want to get to know the long story short, the best biography, in my opinion, is the one that his son wrote. It's called The Life of Christopher Columbus by his son, Ferdinand. But if you want to know more about the accusations, maybe you should read History of the Indies by Bartolomé de las Casas. And also maybe you could read his letters. It's called The Writings of Christopher Columbus. Also, you should read Peter Martyr, who wrote this book called The Orban Novel, or The Decades. In my opinion, that's one of the best ones. Now, Raphael is pretty confident about the veracity of Columbus's son's writings. You hear him talk about Ferdinand Columbus, who was Columbus's first biographer and accompanied him on his fourth voyage. He wrote a work entitled The Life of the Admiral Christopher Columbus by his son Ferdinand, which is also known as the Historia. And while Raphael and others that I interviewed pointed to this as a very important and objective text, there are others who believe that Columbus's son couldn't be objective because part of his cause for writing his father's biography was to make claim to some of the rights and privileges and economic rewards that had been promised to Columbus by the Spanish monarchs. And claiming these rights would be a big issue for Columbus during his lifetime and would actually end up in his trial and for his heirs uh, after his death. His son, who wrote a biography of him, which is also included in the CMRS Repertorio Colombiano, became a nobleman, a great high nobleman, and uh, received a great deal of uh, some of the goodies that Columbus never got. And in fact, the second book in the CMRS is called the Book of Privileges, which has all the privileges that Columbus received from the Catholic monarchs, which they did not fulfill. They sort of said, we gave too much. And part of it was that Columbus had negotiated a, a relationship with the, uh, with the Catholic kings that allowed him to take basically 10% of all of the commerce coming and going from these colonies. I mean, he really did not know uh, at that time that it was a, a different continent. He also uh, had himself named as the governor um, and the, the perpetual viceroy. So that meant that he could leave that to his sons. So Columbus entered into that, uh, into that, con that legal conflict and was sent back to Spain in chains and spent many months in prison. And of course, in talking to Rafael, once again, we encounter the writings of de las Casas. Just a heads up here, this is kind of a point where the audio and the interview starts to go a little wonky. So hopefully you can understand everything that Rafael is saying about this very important text. You know, in, in for example, in the case of Las Casas, Las Casas, he wrote history of the Indies. And he's the source that my, most, most revisionists use to accuse Columbus of whatever they're accusing him, but they're using the wrong timeline of history or they are misquoting Columbus, or they are misquoting Las Casas. 
but also Las Casas, he he's the creator of this thing that we call the legend of the noble savage or the myth of the noble savage because he portrayed the indigenous people as almost as angels. But then he portrayed the Spaniards as evil monsters. And yes, it's true that uh, Spaniards, they commit uh, all sorts of atrocities against the indigenous people. But Las Casas was not the, the only one accusing them for, for that. The first person who deal against these people was Columbus. He's the one who punished the Spaniards for mistreating the, the natives. People use the books of Las Casas as propaganda, especially the book that he wrote is called A History of the Destruction of the Indies. You can find that book in English. It's very short. That's the book that people are using to claim that Columbus was throwing innocent natives to the dogs and doing all sorts of atrocities. But if you read the beginning of the, of the book, you will see that the book is not even about Columbus. It's about events that happened after Columbus was removed from office or he was already dead. And many of the places mentioned in the book are places that Columbus either never settled there or never reached. Like Cuba, I mean, he, he discovered Cuba, but he did not settle there. But Mexico, he never reached Mexico or Peru. Uh, Las Casas, he, he knew Columbus. He described Columbus as a hero. But the problem with Las Casas is that he, he had this personality that he tended to exaggerate. And always uh, he always spoke in hyperbole. So you can pick and choose. You, there are parts in the book that you can see Columbus almost as Jesus Christ, but also some parts that they doesn't look that good. Raphael makes a couple of points that I think are important. And some of the other scholars that I spoke to confirm in different ways. First and foremost, the idea that modern day historians have the opportunity to cherry pick passages from the contemporary Columbus texts. And many use them out of context for their own ends. And, and very often what we see is that there isn't really a, a debate. There, what we have are two sides reaffirming their position and getting louder. In Cuban studies, we call this the dialogue of the deaf. And it's not so much about listening to each other, but for me, of, of just saying like you're very similar <laughs> in the sense that neither of you have a very nuanced vision of, of, of history. Um, I mean, how? and I had to ask, I said, okay, let's read the texts. Let's see what Columbus says. And there are instances in which he does things that we don't, don't agree with. But I think that there, uh, people are, are uh, the type of reading they're doing is a cherry picking. They're looking for a citation that goes along with what they think rather than understanding that this is a person who fundamentally saw the world differently. I think Professor Pancrazio sums up quite nicely there part of what this entire exercise is going to be about, as we've said from the very beginning, which is listening. I think one of the most important things I learned in our quest for the source material over these past couple of weeks is that even when you have documentation, even when you can access everything that's written on a topic, it's still quite possible to interpret history the way you want to. That's the point of history, how it gets used. And Professor Ruiz, in a very eloquent way, made that point much better than I could as we closed out his interview. The issue is that while historians until 30 years ago we are political historians who wrote history from the top down, we historians now write from the bottom up. The first uh, serious scholarly book about what is the United States is written by Gary Nash. I, I forget the title now, but which is also that the United States has a history which includes natives and so on. Now think about the history of the United States that is taught, not anymore, I hope, but until this very day. It is a, begins with Massachusetts Bay Colony, begins with the pilgrims, and ignores the fact that there is already a whole system at work in Florida, the southwest of the United States, and so on. Ignore completely. So. It begins with the landing of the pilgrims. It has a face. It has a, a kind of history. It has a myth associated with it, the city upon the hill and things like that. And ignores the lives of many other people. This is, by the way, not unique to the United States. All countries build their own mythologies of national histories. There is a great 
German essayist. His name was Walter Benjamin. He actually fled the Nazis and committed suicide outside the Spanish border because the Spanish border was closed and he couldn't make it to Portugal on the way to the United States. And he was one of the most incisive thinkers of the 20th century. And he wrote an essay on historicism in which he argues that there is no monument of civilization that is not at the same time a monument of barbarity. That is to say, everything that, that we see is built with the toil and the pain of the many for the benefit of the few, which is why he said we should brush history against the grain. That losers never have histories. It's only the victors who write the history. Well, in the last 20 years or so, you know, we have examples of this. Until 40 years ago, there was no women in history. Until 30 years ago, there were no African-Americans in history. Until 20 years ago, there were no Hispanic-Americans in history. Until 30 years ago, there were no Italians in U.S. history. And that applies to all kinds of things. I think it's safe to say that in the exploration of these documents, what I set out to do was to understand where there was objective truth. And what I came to realize was no matter how carefully we read the documentation that exists, no matter how expert we can become on the resources that are out there, even in its purest form, history is always going to be a tool. It can be used, it can be misused, it can be misinterpreted, and it can be weaponized for ideology and for emotion. And so hopefully, all of you have enjoyed this journey as much as I have. Many of the voices that you've heard today have spoken on a bunch of different topics, and they'll be coming back in future episodes. Obviously, in the coming weeks, we're going to get deeper into the nitty-gritty of this thing and into some of the emotional arguments and some of the defenses and attacks on Christopher Columbus. But for now, I'm hoping that this has been a useful exercise for all of us who are listening to the series to have a better understanding of what we're basing all of this on. Everything that we know about Columbus comes from these sources. And I greatly encourage everybody to go out there and read what they can if you're interested in keeping up with this conversation. Like many of the speakers said, a lot of these resources are available online, in Google Books, for free, available to you now. So go out and read. Arm yourself for this conversation in the best way possible. If there's anything you can take from my journey, it's the quest to arm ourselves with fact. That's what we're looking for. So hopefully you've enjoyed this exercise with me. I look forward to hearing everybody's thoughts, your emails, your messages on social media. Please do contact us. Let us know if you've got articles or speakers or resources that we should be tapping into. We really are trying to do as much as we can to open this tent up as wide as possible because the dialogue is important, not just in Italian-American history, but in American history and where we are today as a nation. So from all of us at the Italian-American Podcast, thanks for listening, and we'll be back next week. See that you're born in Italiano.